and welcome on back, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the Northern Miner Podcast, and I'm your host, Matthew Keevil. As usual, we are brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Please do head over to yukonminingalliance.ca to check out all the exciting exploration and development activity going on in Canada's Yukon Territory. And this is episode 84 for the week of December 11th. I can almost feel myself slipping into holiday mode here. I'm uh, heading out of town on end of next week, I think. I know some people are expediting that and uh, and wrapping things up at the end of this week. I've had a few conversations with people like, oh, well, I'm going to be out of town at the cabin starting on Friday. I'm like, fair enough, that's a great idea. So everybody, please do enjoy those seasonal festivities with family and friends. Gather around the tree, hit the slopes, drink some rum and eggnog. Great time of year as we uh, all enjoy this well-earned vacation heading into 2018. And speaking of which, we will be continuing our Outlook theme here at the Northern Miner Podcast, where we dig into news headlines, analyst notes, and general commentary to uh, give us a little bit of a hint as to what we can expect heading into the new year. First and foremost, I will be running some audio from an exclusive one-on-one interview I did with Tom Butler, the CEO of the International Council of Mining and Metals. Uh, Tom was in town this past week with the Vancouver Board of Trade to talk about how large Canadian companies like Tech Resources and Gold Corp have become world leaders in terms of decarbonization and fighting climate change. But as our listeners probably know, the ICMM is also very involved in discussing and lobbying for the mining industry on the international stage, whether that be at global organizations like the United Nations or at events like the World Economic Forum. So I wanted to take this opportunity to sit down with Tom and talk about some of the major questions, themes, and challenges uh, that might be facing our industry right now and heading into the new year. Uh, So we talk about not just things like climate change and renewables, but also things like social license, uh, reputation management, and a lot of other really interesting things. Because I really wanted to drill down into sort of what was being said in, in, in these really big macro discussions on mining. You hear a lot about, obviously, fossil fuels, green energy, uh, the oil and gas industry. But where, where's the mining industry positioned in all of this? Um, and, and, and I thought this would be a really interesting discussion to have. And lo and behold, some of the themes we talk about on this podcast came up once again. And that's uh, in terms of sort of reputation branding, the mining industry is a partner. Uh, in terms of renewable energies, in terms of the electric vehicle revolution, how our materials are going to effectively underpine a lot of this decarbonization uh, is the term Tom uses. Uh, so I'm looking forward to running that. It's about a 15 minute segment where we we dig down into some of the uh, the big conversations that are happening globally in terms of our business, which I thought would be uh, sort of a cool sort of angle. We talk about things at such a micro level. We talk about specific projects, certain challenges, certain jurisdictions, but this is a really overarching broad discussion on how mining is being discussed today at uh, very high levels of government. Uh, so this is a really good one. I look forward to running that with Tom. Meanwhile, our senior staff writer in Toronto had the chance to pick the brain of Rory Johnston, who is a commodity economist covering energy metals and agricultural markets at Scotia Bank. Uh, I wanted to dig into a few of the comments Trisha unearthed during her talk with Rory, uh, specifically pertaining to nickel and copper, because uh, we've been talking a lot about the timing of the rally or potential rally, I should say, in the base metal complex. And uh, I wanted to see what Scotia's Rory Johnston had to say on nickel and copper, what he was thinking about 2018. 
And the timing really couldn't be better because we have a very special guest joining us next week. Uh, you've heard me cite his research on a regular basis, but uh, Colin Hamilton, the Managing Director of Commodity Research at BMO Capital Markets, will be joining us from London, England to talk about uh, the fundamentals from what he's seen this past year and outlooks he has for next year in terms of the base metal complex, global economics. Uh, they just had, uh, BMO did, a big update on the Chinese economy. So we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of the demand side drivers in terms of the large uh, global economic leaders and things like that. So I'm really looking forward to having Colin online. Do not miss that next week. We uh, will have about a 15 to 20 minute conversation uh, where we talk about what he's seeing uh, in terms of that sort of macro view and uh, what BMO's forecasting for the, uh, the metal complex heading into 2018. So very excited about that. Finally, our sponsor, Spotlight, this week is another really cool segment. Uh, this week we have Joe Lombard, who is the Global Managing Director of Metals at Hatch. Uh, so we'll be talking from the large-scale, obviously multinational engineering side, uh, about innovation and new technology uh, and what Hatch is seeing as a, a large, big-time supplier uh, in terms of what mining companies are doing and the mining industry is doing in terms of innovation. So that's going to be a really cool segment. Don't miss the sponsor, Spotlight, this week. It's going to be awesome. Uh, includes my about eight-minute conversation with Joe at our progressive mine forum in toronto Alrighty, well let's uh, move right on with the program uh first and foremost we'll do our news and notes take a look at some commodity prices and headlines for the week spot gold prices continued to struggle today as they dropped as much as a dollar fifty per ounce in morning trading before settling at about one thousand two hundred and forty five dollars per ounce at the time of recording Taking a step back, gold actually hit a five-month low overnight and has fallen almost 5% in the past two weeks. Uh, Scotiabank notes that this signals to many technical investors that the metal has entered, quote, oversold territory. Uh, the bank notes that the gold price was always expected to be choppy in the face of tomorrow's rate hike announcement from the U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, with a key focus likely to be on the language associated with what outgoing Fed Chair Yellen expects for 2018. Furthermore, Scotia adds that copper has effectively been treading water with, quote, no real market impacting news having been released since the announcement that Tongling non-ferrous will close part of its copper smelting operations to ease pollution over the winter. The bank adds that last week's Chinese trade data demonstrated a robust market with imports and exports both stronger than expected. Scotia notes that the news reportedly demonstrates robust Chinese domestic demand as well as strong demand for Chinese goods from the rest of the world. The rest of the base metal complex was supported by China's better-than-expected new loans data, which helped ease market concerns about a slowdown in the world's second-largest economy. One major headline we've been watching over the past 24 hours is Glencore's large-scale investor update conference call. They released the slides on this early this morning and then subsequently held the call. A lot of analysts were watching what Glencore was going to say in terms of zinc, how much supply were they going to bring online, etc. Uh, one of the big headlines that came out of the conference call, a few of the analysts noted this, was that Glencore commissioned a study into electric vehicles and what impact they could have on commodity demands. Uh, this study concluded that a target of 30 million EV units by 2030 requires 4.1 million tons of copper annually, 1.1 million tons of nickel annually, and 314,000 tons of cobalt annually. This represents an 18% increase in copper demand, 56% in nickel, and 314% in cobalt, respective of 2016 production. So uh, a big, uh, big impact from the EV narrative once again we hear uh, Glencore using the time horizon of about 2030 for a lot of these numbers. Uh, during the call Glencore also reiterated that they will not 
impact the zinc price. Uh, they may actually scale back current production even more if the price reacts negatively. Uh, Glenclore said uh, it they have no further latent capacity in zinc, uh, implying that all other capacity outside of Lady Loretta, which is bringing online in Australia, and that's 160,000 tons, I believe, annually, either cannot or will not be brought back online. Uh, so Canaccord UK mining analyst Tim Huff notes that 220,000 tons of quiet zinc restarts have already occurred. Uh, he also adds that a lot of today's announcements is also for governments wanting to see their projects back online, with the possibility that Glencore will come up with some excuse to bring back volume slower than today's guidance implies so long story short uh glencore is not going to flood the market with zinc they're very cognizant of the impact uh their supply could have on pricing and during the call they said to analysts that uh they will do not want to impact the zinc price so for many analysts there was lots of big <laughs> headline capital letters glencore is not going to kill zinc so everybody's pretty happy about that so that was a big uh, big news item we were watching overnight i'm going to have a larger write-up on the glencore conference call coming up in the next 48 hours so check northernminer.com for that Sticking with uh, this sort of macro base metal conversation, I wanted to read a couple quotes uh, from Trish Saywell, our senior staff writer in Toronto's interview with Rory Johnson. This is coming from a direct transcript. Uh, Trish asked Rory about both copper and nickel, and I wanted to sort of repeat a couple of his comments. If you haven't caught them yet, uh, head over to northernminer.com for the transcript of Trish's entire interview with Rory. But uh, first and foremost, let's talk copper. So Rory says, I have been calling copper to come down for a while now. Copper has been relatively overvalued for a couple of months. Prices a high of about $3.20 per pound in October, and that price felt a little too high. Copper prices are going down uh, from where they are right now. We have copper averaging $2.85 per pound in 2018 and rising to $3 per pound in 2019. They'll steadily increase thereafter and likely hit a peak price about $350 per pound by early next decade. So we're hearing some of those familiar themes we've heard from other analysts from JP Morgan from Bank of Montreal. Uh, in terms of the timing of that copper rally early next decade, uh, we're waiting until the 2020s until we see maybe that sustainable price from $350 to $4 per pound. Uh, just continuing on with some of the comments Rory made in terms of copper, uh, he says, over the last year there's been li a little bit of fundamental support for a copper rally. So we saw slightly higher demand from China. That was a demand surprise. We also saw higher than expected supply disruption in many parts of the world. While we do see deficits starting to emerge over the next couple of years on the emptying supply of new mine projects, I don't think we're there quite yet. So while it's possible the copper price will be bid up higher now into anticipation of that future shortage, there's no need to see those higher prices today. So interesting to, interesting to see. We, we've talked a little bit about this. We heard this coming out of LME week. Uh, from a few analysts that did the base metal debate um, that, uh, you know, you've seen a, a high levels of speculative activity in copper contracts as lots of fund managers and managed money have gone into copper contracts based on the global growth story. Uh, this is another observation that Rory made. Uh, he notes that the challenge is that as more and more fund money went into copper contracts, they reached an all-time high net position and these positions only had one way to go. Uh, and, and then you started to see copper prices level out and dip down, obviously. Uh, people with long contracts, Rory says, started liquidating to take profit and then their was an incentive to short it to catch it on the way down so that's sort of where he's talking about what we're seeing in terms of the copper movement right now um and then uh, we wanted to move on i want to also uh trish also asked rory about nickel uh she said uh, what's your view on nickel uh last year the nickel price was about us four dollars and 36 pence per pound uh and scotia forecast for nickel in 2017 is an average of about four dollars and 64 cents per pound rising to five dollars per pound in 2018 so in response rory said 
It's a market that is starting to see real deficits after a decade of surplus production. So that is definitely favorable for nickel going forward and is likely to keep momentum on the upside. Uh, the unfortunate reality for nickel is that you have a very large pile of inventory that is built up during the period of surplus production. Uh, on ma major commodity exchanges, the COMEX, the LME, and the Shanghai Futures Exchange, you have upwards of 90 days of demand worth of nickel on those exchanges versus 9 to 11 days of demand for copper, zinc, and aluminum. So you do have a significant uh, inventory overhang with nickel that you don't see in the rest of the base metals. Uh, Rory adds that while we do see upward gains for the next little while, we're forecasting a 50 cents gain per pound per year moving forward. Uh, he says you're really only going to be able to see prices higher than that once we start drawing out the inventory overhang and it's probably larger than what we see in official t statistics because a lot of the nickel inventory is likely held off exchange where data is scarce. Uh, so uh, Scotiabank sees nickel prices moving from $5 per pound in 2018 to six fifty US six fifty per pound in 2021. So it says just mild gains. So there's a, a little bit more insight from the uh, institutional banking side on the nickel and copper markets. Once again, do tune in next week. I will be having Colin Hamilton and the Managing Director of Commodity Research at BMO on, and we will definitely pick his brain on the base metal complex as well as the electric vehicle revolution. So we look forward to that. And now let's sally forth into my exclusive interview with Tom Butler, the CEO of the International Council of Mining and Metals, where we'll talk about some of the big issues, challenges, and debates facing the mining industry on the international stage. Uh, so I'll run this interview with Tom, runs about five, uh, 15 minutes, uh, and then I'll be back after the break to lead into our sponsorship spotlight with Joel Lombard from Hatch. And welcome on in. This is Matthew Keevil with the Northern Miner, and today we're joined by Tom Butler, the CEO of the International Council of Mining and Metals. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Pleasure. Um, so obviously today we're here to talk a little bit about uh, the intersection between the mining industry, uh, sustainable development, and uh, the environment. Um, so uh, to kick us off, I want to start on maybe a broad level um, and talk a little bit about, um, in your experience, what people are saying about the mining industry out there today. Um, obviously there's a little bit of uh, debate about the oil and gas and, and fossil fuels, but uh, I'd be very interested to hear some insights on the global level of uh, what the narrative is about mining. Okay, so that's partly uh, what I'm going to be talking about uh, at lunchtime today at the Vancouver event. Um, you know, there's a there's part of what we do as ICMM is keep an eye, uh, keep a track on on the different trends globally that are impacting the industry, and. Um, the three, the three sort of key trends uh, are firstly, um, society is expecting the private sector, and that includes the mining industry, to add a lot more value um, to stakeholders, mm -hmm. not just shareholders. Um, so that means in practice things like uh, delivering on the sustainable development goals, addressing climate change, dealing with inequality, whether it's gender inequality or you know, underemployment or your salary equality. Uh, the second trend is that there's a lot of um, attention paid by society towards uh, resource scarcity. So that, that means resource in the, in the broadest sense, not just mineral resources, but mm -hmm. water, 
air, and then human resources, and uh, uh, in particular as it impacts the industry uh, concerns about water and how water um, affects the ability to mine. And then the third area is uh, you know, societal expectations for much, grace, much greater accountability and transparency. Uh, so that means um, uh, you know, citizens getting much more involved in where they put their money for their pensions. Uh, they want to know, you know what they're investing in. Uh, much greater calls for uh, environmental, social and governance criteria to be published, disclosed, for funds to you know, invest according to certain criteria. Um, people bringing court cases to uh, places like Canada because they don't think that uh, local jurisdictions uh, are providing adequate remedy. Um, so those are, the, those are the three broad trends and uh, you know, they do impact the industry. I think um, I mentioned uh, climate change and people you know, expecting companies to do their bit for climate change. I think the oil and gas guys have, you know, for obvious reasons, um, getting it a little bit harder than the mining industry because the mining industry is also going to be uh, responsible for supplying the metals required to decarbonize. And yeah. it's not just things like lithium and cobalt, but it's also you know, yeah. coal and iron ore. Um, so, you know, I think uh, uh, I think that's those are the trends that impact in the industry, and and you know, the mining industry is not doing well in 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 many countries uh, mm -hmm. in terms of um, answering those trends or giving uh, society what it what it needs, and um, you you see that manifested in you know a number of countries where social license. Uh, has been lost doesn't exist mm -hmm. where governments feel that they've got you know political room to um, take actions because they don't because the mining industry doesn't have the support of uh, local populations mm -hmm. so I think we've got um, a bit of work to do still in a number of countries in terms of you know communicating much more strongly about the benefits and impacts positive impacts of mining mm -hmm. uh, getting local populations behind uh, you know those positive impacts, especially in developing countries where mining can be a real, you know, change maker for uh, alleviating poverty and and you know bringing um, resources into an economy. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we also need to obviously continue to keep doing things right because, you know, essentially what I'm talking about is there's a trust gap. How do we close the trust gap? We continue to do things right on the environmental side. Uh, we continue to do things right in terms of engagement with local communities, and we communicate about it. And the interesting thing for me, Tom, is is obviously maybe, well, I wouldn't say historically, but we're seeing an, a scenario right now globally where, you know, politics is diverse. There are the regimes in different countries, uh, whether it be in the United States, uh, Europe, etc., aren't always seeing eye to eye on these topics. Yeah. Um, so you're seeing debate at the political level as well uh, about, you know, not just the legit legitimacy of climate change, but how much it should be weighted, how pro-business people are. Um, so I'm just wondering, in, in your conversations with, let's say, politicians, I mean, is there a, a consensus growing here, or is it? do you think it's still this really volatile, dynamic discussion that, that, that's going on? I think there's a lot of volatility. I mean, I, on, you know, uh, so there isn't consensus, and we've seen that uh, with Trump pulling out of the, the Paris Accord. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a few things at play. I think one of, one of the... Um, things at play is that um, people are demanding a sort of much more sort of direct right to have their say and intervene and uh, you know that's sort of leading to uh, you know pop popular nationalist sort of approaches from politicians mm -hmm. um, but equally people are um, uh, you know what, what people are also seeing um, 
uh, you know that they don't they tend they 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 tend not to trust uh, their governments they tend not to trust institutions they tend not to trust experts they tend not to trust you know big companies <laughs> yeah. and so um, uh, you know there's there's a kind of transition going on where you know some global governance mechanisms are acquiring more legitimacy because they you know they kind of have a global aspect to them and they're kind of replacing national governments which people you know very often don't trust yeah and and interesting um, just to harken back to a comment you made uh, in your opening statements here uh, on shareholders and and I always find this interesting uh, this dynamic between stakeholders and shareholders um, and obviously companies deal with this on a daily basis uh, and if if a shareholder comes to you and asks you what's the IRR what's the internal rate of return at your solar field yeah yeah. That's an interesting conversation to me yeah. because in many ways these green projects or these environmental projects are hard to quantify financially. Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering how uh, that sort of plays into what the ICMM deals with and sort of how the companies are having those discussions in terms of sh generating shareholder value at the same time as doing these things you think are so important to stakeholders. I, I, you know, I, think, there's, I think there's more alignment between shareholders and stakeholders than many, than many people uh, recognize um, because if you're talking about social license to operate social contract um, delivering on societal expectations um, in the final analysis if you're not doing that then um, you run into a number of issues uh, for example if you're not on the right side of the reputational debate then you know less people are going to invest in you so you know that's going to affect your share price, mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately, uh, if you get things really badly wrong, you um, you lose your project or your mm -hmm. project gets stopped. So, you know, where's the value for shareholders in that? So, um, you know, our members have all uh, you know recognised uh, that climate change is an issue. For example, they've we've made a pretty clear statement about you know what we think needs to happen in order to manage and mitigate. Uh, climate change, and they're all behind that. And um, you know, they—I think that's because they recognise that this is you know, a major societal concern. Mm -hmm. um, you and I are pensioners, we, or will be pensioners. We're putting money into pension funds. I hope you are. Yeah. Uh, the pension funds are placing the money for us. Uh, individuals these days care a lot more about you know where their money goes than they used to. Um, so the, because the pension funds care, they're the ones who are investing in our companies, and so the companies. Uh, you know, have to respond to that, and uh, you know, there's there's a number that came out in this week's Economist actually, um, just talking about the um, the evolution of the number of uh, funds that are using environmental, social, and governance criteria as part of their selection process. Okay. So they went from 13 trillion in 2012 to 23 trillion in 2016. So mm -hmm. that's almost almost doubling the num the you know the dollars that that care about ESG factors. So inter interestingly, it, it sounds like you're hearing this dis discourse not just from the mining side, but more importantly, almost from the capital markets side, right? Where, where the money comes from. Basically. Capital markets and end users. Yeah. So, um, you know, most people uh, as consumers are pretty um, long way away from mining companies, mm -hmm. but they're all using mining companies' products and. Um, you know, some of the very effective NGO campaigns have been targeted not at mining companies, but at people like Apple, mm -hmm. who are using mining companies' products, and therefore, you know, people at like Apple are starting to care. Yeah. Um, and you know, they've made sort of, for, for example, they announced because of this concern about recycling and uh, efficiency, they've made this announcement that they're going to 
you know, switch to 100% uh, recycling for their phones, yeah. and they're also very concerned about the supply chain and you know making sure they don't have uh, child labour in the supply chain because these things have yeah. all have cobalt in them, and cobalt comes from a, a DRC, country where there's a lot of yeah. children, you know, yeah. doing mining. Yeah, and and that's interesting to me because that's a whole different angle to it. Is is you have individuals or corporations or capital markets who want responsible development, but then you have that narrative about no development, don't mine the earth, switch to 100% re recycled material. Yeah. And so how, how do, does an organization like the ICMM deal with individuals or organizations who just don't want it? Well, look, I mean, I, you know, you can't, you can't sit down at the table with everyone. I think that's a kind of, that's still a fringe debate. We've written one or two uh, pieces about that. Mm -hmm. And the reality is that um, if we are going to decarbonize and if we are going to continue to deliver um, the materials that modern society needs, and in particular, um, people who want to move into the middle classes in places like China, mm. there's going to have to be a huge amount of uh, uh, commodities supplied by the mining industry. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to get that all out of uh, recycling, um, no matter how much you, you might uh, wish it to, to be the case. And it's interesting, I've had a lot of meetings with with companies that I wouldn't historically have had meetings with, like IBM and Google um, and Tesla, yeah. talking to us about partnerships and sustainability and how the mining industry can be um, involved in this, as you said, decarbonization. Um, and so that sort of ties into, as you said, reputation management as well, and an opportunity to maybe increase our reputation on that sustainability index. Yeah. Um, so one of the um, things we want to talk about is that the ICMM is starting a social media campaign yep. um, and uh, called Mining with Principles. Uh, and so maybe talk just a little bit on uh, what you think the power of social media might be able to do and how the ICMM is going to be leveraging it. Okay. Yeah. Well, let me, let me just say a little bit about the campaign first. Sure. So, sure. you know, it, it comes back to what I was talking about earlier, the, the trust gap. So, um, you know, the, the, if you're going to close the trust gap, you need to do, do things. One is you need to um, continue to do things right in terms of your environmental and social policies and approaches. But secondly, you need to communicate better. You know, you need to communicate that you're committed to doing things right and that uh, and people need to understand you know that that there is a group of companies who've you know set themselves some high standards and are, and are committed to abiding by them so you know the, the underlying premise of the of this campaign is that we feel that in the past we haven't uh, got that positive story out enough and we're trying to get it out a lot more and we're, and we're using social media because you know social media um, is uh, is, is followed by a different audience to you know our CEOs. Most most yeah. most of our CEOs don't use Facebook, but yeah. uh, you know most people in their twenties, thirties, and and forties are using uh, Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn or you know all sorts of other uh, social media tools. And and so this is a way to reach people who otherwise you know, wouldn't necessarily be reached. And just to get the the message out that um, you know we have. We have got a set of um, very aspirational principles which we've all committed to. There's some very firm commitments that, that we've made along the way as well, and we, you know, we've called that mining with principles. It's a, you know, dedicated website which we're trying to uh, get people to, to pick up on. And at the moment, it's a pilot. We want to see, you know, does the message resonate? How much pickup does it get? Um, and subject to, uh, you know, subject to how much uh, traction it gets will adjust uh, going down the road as, as necessary and maybe go into other countries because currently we're only, uh, you know, we're rolling this out in five or six countries. Um, but, you know, if it resonates particularly well in Peru, for example, then we'll build on that and maybe, you know, try it in, uh, in other Latin American countries. 
And that's this is an interesting conversation just to wrap up here because we're coming up quickly on your presentation and everything. So um, talking about uh, social media and mining, I find it very interesting because you're talking about a legacy business that has often benefited from not being transparent, um, whether that be due to regulatory issues or uh, disclosure issues with regulators, security exchanges, etc. Um, what's that conversation going like? I mean, I know that some mining companies worry about overdisclosure or have what pictures of their mine site might mean for regulations and things like that. How do you strike that balance between that transparency, but also maybe requirements of regulators or securities exchanges or, or things like that? Like, how do you how do mining companies feel about that? Well, you know, there's a there's a there's a range of approaches across uh, uh, even across my membership, but. Uh, you know, some people within my membership are advocating for what they call radical transparency, where you just disclose everything. Yeah. I mean, we kind of, you know, one of the issues is, in general, uh, we, disclose, we disclose a huge amount of data, mm -hmm. um, but we're not, we're not convinced that many people are reading it. You know, you put out a 200-page sustainability report, and it's so dense. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, how do, how do we disclose data which is meaningful and which is going to get picked up and which enables uh, you know investors to benchmark and to compare performance so you know in general I think there's there's willingness to obviously people you know if, if we're going to disclose in a certain country members are concerned that um, we shouldn't be disclosing uh, stuff which pushes which puts us at a competitive disadvantage because other companies are not being required to disclose so there's always that issue mm -hmm. but in principle um, you know the amount of stuff that we disclose is, is huge compared to even 10 years ago. And then yeah. the issue now is you've got armies of people working on the disclosure and is that is that actually really delivering anything positive or can we do it in a more efficient way? And so these are sort of the conversations going on in the boardroom right now about, yeah. about how to leverage these new new forms of media to be yeah. more transparent. Yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much again for joining us. This has been Tom Butler, the CEO of the International Council for Mining and Metals. Thank you, my pleasure. Welcome back to studio. Thanks again to Tom Butler from the ICMM for sitting down to chat with me about some of the headlining challenges, issues, and discussions going on around the mining industry at the multinational level. It's always interesting, as I mentioned at the onset of the show, uh, we hear so much about things at sort of the micro or project level about how individual projects are trying to achieve social license, of uh, about conversations going on with specific governments, whether it be territorial, provincial, or uh, globally. But uh, it's great to hear that sort of broader or international conversation on mining in terms of the business or the idea of mining, where it fits in with uh, this new sort of renewable energy revolution and uh, big political statements that go on in, uh, you know, the halls of the UN or at events like the World Economic Forum. And we're hearing a lot of this, uh, things we talk about on the Northern Miner podcast quite often, uh, in terms of uh, mining being affiliated now with a solution to any sort of energy or um, 
resource scarcity, as Tom said, uh, where we're going to work alongside technology companies um, and, you know, uh, pioneers in terms of renewable energies to provide uh, the basic materials that are needed for things like electric vehicles, solar panels, wind turbines, etc. So there's a big movement uh, at, at the top level with big companies like Tech, Glencore, Barrick, Gold Corp, Anglo-American, etc., Rio, uh, talking about how we can position ourselves in such a way that the mining industry is seen as a, as a sustainable partner uh, to technology industries that's really there to contribute uh, to solutions to all these many problems we have, whether it be the scarcity of water, uh, the, uh, the, the, the potential threat of climate change, etc. Uh, so it's great to sit down and chat with Tom about those issues, uh, as we always do on the Northern Miner Podcast. We try to hit the financial side, the economic side, but also the social side of our business to see what people are saying in terms of license to operate uh, and, and reputation management, which I think is really important. So thanks again to Tom. That was a great chat. Uh, and hopefully we'll have him on the show again to get an update on things as we move ahead into the new year. And I'm going to take a slight segue while we're on the subject of sort of uh, politics, if you will, uh, to talk about a big piece of news in British Columbia over the past 24 hours. And that was the uh, approval by the new Democratic government, or I should say the coalition between the new Democratic government and the Green Party, uh, to approve uh, the Site C hydroelectric dam project. Uh, now, this was this is just funny. I, I was on social media, and obviously there's back and forth over uh, whether, you know, this project should go ahead, the economic benefits, uh, the uh, tender process, uh, all, loads of long questions. And I I was just laughing because like people were like oh well the NDP went ahead with it and I'm like well there's never any doubt anyone who thinks the NDP were going to cancel this project doesn't know anything about logistics or large-scale industrial development you do not plug a you do not pull a pr- plug on something like this unless it's an ideological decision so what happened here was pragmatic politics now the big question I suppose for us in BC here was whether the NDP were particularly pragmatic so will they make a stand on ideology despite the fact it would cost huge amounts of money jobs and just it would just be an absolute boondoggle so lo and behold the uh ndp demonstrated they are in fact pragmatic despite the fact that they wasted a large amount of taxpayer resources more than likely on this review which turned out to be completely unnecessary because all that happened was they revised the expenditure guidance upwards which it's a government project so we all know that's going to happen anyway but it was super funny because i've seen a lot of journalists and it's like oh the ndp government you know made a good decision or they made a bad decision or whatever well you know what they made the only decision they can make And that's the end of that story. So, I mean, it was just funny to me that after all this sort of political rhetoric and narrative and things like that, yes, Site C is going ahead. I don't think there was ever any doubt in anyone's mind. Andrew Weaver, the uh, co-leader of the uh, quote-unquote coalition, went on record and said, oh, this decision had been made months ago. I would be... (laughs) This decision was probably made before the election. Uh, no offense to anybody, but I mean, you know, long-scale government reviews like this. I mean, it was funny, and you heard a lot of narrative back and forth rhetoric in the in the press, etc., over over the state of this project. But anyone who knows anything about large-scale industrial development knew that it was never going anywhere. So, a pretty funny stuff, interesting stuff in British Columbia. I always sort of laugh when there's all this uh, hokum pokum going on in the press about uh, you know certain narratives and certain people saying this and that, but. In the end, I mean, pragmatism will rule the day when it comes to government expenditures, etc. Hopefully. The big question I saw a few headlines where it was like, if they wanted to be super, a super ideological government, they could have canceled it. But then we are in really big trouble. So... I guess it's good news in that regard. But speaking of which, I have been cracking away at the NDP, uh, our new government of BC, to get uh, our minds minister on or some uh, representative from the government on uh, on the program to talk a little bit about, uh, they, they recently made a big sort of huge press conference, uh, which reiterates some of the stuff we just talked about with Tom in terms of the partnership between innovation and mining and technology. Uh, so I wanted to get someone from the BC government, the new BC coalition government on the program to talk a little bit about mining, their uh, policy stance and uh, platform on mining 
and what they plan to do with things like uh, the flow through tax credits and uh, things like that. So, you know, how they're going to treat the mining industry, both from, you know, an exploration and development point of view, but also from a production point of view. So good news. I have heard back from the media department of the BC government, and they are going to arrange an interview for us uh, with members of the uh, mine ministry, I believe. Uh, possibly the premier. We don't know. I'm still putting it together. Uh, as with governments, they move you know, fairly slowly. So the timeline I have been given by the uh, media department at the BC government is the new year. So hopefully in early January, I will get someone from the NDP Green Coalition government uh, on the program to talk a little bit more in depth about what's going on with the mining industry, how they view it. Uh, I've heard... Um, they do view it as an important element in terms of providing jobs in the interior. So we'll talk to hopefully uh, either the Minister of Mines and Energy and Natural Resources or someone from the ministry uh, or government in terms of what sort of they're feeling uh, about mining and how it fits into their platform. So look forward to that in the new year. I'm uh, stoked on that. I'll have my questions uh, ready to go for that one. Um, so yeah, but uh, let's move right on in to our sponsorship spotlight. Once again, this is Joe Lombard, the Global Managing Director of Metals with Hatch. Uh, we're going to chat a little bit once again about innovation, new technologies, uh, new workforces, um, and how Hatch, as a major engineering supplier globally, uh, is coping with these things, implementing these things, um, and sort of just uh, assisting with research and development, working with mining companies, um, and new technologies at mine and development sites. Um, so yeah, this will pretty much wrap up our show for the week. My uh, sponsor spotlight with Joe Lombard from Hatch. Uh, once again, this has been Matthew Keevil and the Northern Miner Podcast. We do appreciate listenership, and I will talk to you next week. Welcome to welcome to welcome to the sponsor spotlight. Sponsor spotlight. And welcome back. Here we are in downtown Toronto with the Northern Miners Progressive Mining Forum for the next in our interview series. I'm joined by Joe Lombard, the Global Managing Director of Metals for Hatch. Joe, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Joe, obviously the theme of the day is uh, innovation and technology um, and Hatch working uh, obviously closely with a lot of the mining companies. I wanted to start out by asking you, how has your business been impacted by uh, some of the themes today, big data, um, automation, things like that? Well, we pride ourselves in being an innovative uh, engineering company uh, with deep roots in, in the mining business uh, for, for more than 60 years. So we are very excited about the opportunities um, that the digitalization and, and the automation and innovation brings, brings to the mining fraternity and, and have been engaging with our clients uh, over many projects uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, we see an open-mindedness uh, coming in that we as innovators and engineers and, and uh, scientists, I would want to say, yeah. uh, really uh, thrive on. And, um, and we've done some interesting work uh, around the globe and, and we see, see our clients also becoming very engaged and, and very active in, in the work that we do together. Of course, we, can't, we don't work in isolation, we work yeah. with our clients and, and we make their operations uh, work better. Um, I don't think there's a single solution, you know, there's no silver bullet out there. Yeah. But it's a combination of, of techniques and tools uh, that have come to the forefront that have become really, really accessible uh, recently that I think uh, we, will, we can all use and we all use uh, to the collective benefit of, of the industry. And, and it's, it's interesting, Joe, you say there's, there's sort of an open-mindedness coming now, which, which sort of pretends there hadn't been that open-mindedness 
before, and we've heard that in a lot of the talks here yeah. today, that, that miners are lagging behind and things like that. In, in your opinion, your experience, why do you think mining has been slower than, let's say, oil and gas or, or other industries to catch up? It's very complex. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's, uh, it's hard uh, when you go underground into mines. Um, there are a lot of issues, you know, nature, mother nature sometimes is kind to us and sometimes not so kind yeah. to us. And when, when you go into the um, underground, it's, you have to take that into consideration. It's, uh, it's not undangerous. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a certain conservatism that I think is, is rightfully appropriate. Um, we don't want to be cowboys in the industry, and, and uh, the industry has also grown from a, from a very old beginning. It's a much older industry than, <laughs> yeah. than yeah. 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 So I think all of those factors combined, and, and people got, haven't, haven't gotten used to certain ways of, of operating because it worked in the past, uh, I think was, was good enough, and, and most probably just a continuation of that. Uh, today, I think mining companies realize that there's, you know, there are opportunities out there. For, to become more efficient, uh, to have better information, to, to analyze the information better so that you can, you can improve on, on your efficiencies. And it's interesting because, it, as we mentioned, mining is getting more challenging. You're going deeper, yeah. more remote locations, etc. Is, how is Hatch sort of approaching that, where you're mining in, in much more difficult such as terrains and scenarios? Yeah, so I, I mean, we have to take that into consideration. We have to make sure from our point of view that we have the, the necessary skills to deal with the, with the challenges uh, that are there, you know, developing, you know, extractive metallurgy. You have to devise new uh, um, methodologies, uh, different equipment, go high pressures, um, whatever the case might be to, to deal with those uh, challenges. Um, Go, go deeper, you know, at the moment you go deeper, you, you face with, with challenges, temperature and pressure that you have to deal with, um, ventilation, all, all these issues. We have to make sure that from our point of view that we remain at the forefront of, of innovation, mm -hmm. making sure that we, you know, apply the science uh, in an appropriate fashion. And, and that sort of demands you keep update with your workforce too. Labor becomes a big, big topic because you need people who can handle coding and things that maybe in, in, in the past hadn't been part of your purview in, in terms of operations. How have you found sort of, or what are the strategies towards maintaining a high-skilled sort of innovative workforce for Hatch? I, I think uh, with, the, with the new generation, a lot of knowledge comes, yeah. comes with a package, I would say. Yeah. And, and yeah. We, deal, we deal with that in, the, in that, that sense, uh, you know, um, the younger generations have a natural affinity mm -hmm. towards new technologies and openness, um, you know, the, I think mobile phones and that has opened the minds and that accessibility has been um, more granted than what it was maybe in the past. So I think we, we focus a lot of, in our organization, first the fundamental skills, but also the, the, the communication skills and the, and, and the data capture. Data. It's all about the data and how you deal with the data and how you extract uh, value out of data, right? And, and we had... Uh, Full disclosure, Joe and I had a phone conversation before this, so we have a little bit of background with each other. Um, and one of the things you mentioned on the phone call to me was how corporate social responsibility works in to this equation um, and how Hatch has worked sort of to, uh, to advance projects that might help remote communities and things like yes. that. Yes, yeah. that, that's extremely important to us. I mean, um, we are there to support our clients when they develop their projects. Um, and, and more and more remote locations, mm -hmm. as, as we know, as, uh, as the, the existing deposits are, are um, you know, have been used up. And um, we take it very seriously. Uh, we think mining has a great role to play. We, see, we, we the clients that we work with, uh, take social, uh, corporate social responsibility very seriously. And, and we are there in support in, in developing active programs just to leave 
um, a legacy behind, mm -hmm. a legacy for the local community. I think that's extremely important uh, from a personal point of view, but also from our organization's point of view, that, that the population around the deposits that they get, um, not only during the execution of the project, but beyond, beyond the project also, that there's a general upliftment uh, that goes together with the uh, with the projects, should they choose to. Mm -hmm. I yep. think one has to take that into consideration yep. too. Uh, you cannot impose uh, a way of life to, to anybody. I think we have to be careful there. But uh, at least give the opportunity for people, should they choose to, that they can also move, move forward and, and create uh, collective wealth uh, for, for the communities, the rural communities. And we've heard that partnership is, is, is a big word we've heard today quite a bit. Yes. So, yeah, and, and so um, maybe just to wrap up here, Joe, uh, I know we both got a panel and everything we've got to handle here, um, but uh, one of the other themes that sort of emerged is with everything that's going on, all this innovation, you're working with more suppliers than ever, you're working with mining companies, you're working with more underground uh, fleets and, and different OEMs and all that kind of stuff. What's the challenge with standardization sort of making all these people work together that are developing all this innovation, is that, is that a challenge that Hatch faces? Regularly? Yeah, yeah, definitely it's a challenge that, yeah. uh, that we face and it's a big task, I mean, for us to be able to standardize is not going to be always easy because we've got, you know, clients that have invested, uh, had invested lots of capital in, in existing streams mm -hmm. and, and to change that uh, overnight is, is not going to be easy. I think standardization could maybe become at some of the next levels, maybe not at, at the equipment itself, but some of the next levels, um, how to deal with, with information, how, how you um, capture that and how you dissect uh, information, that's going to be easier. Um, but on the equipment itself, um, that, you know, it depends on an operation that has been in operation for, for many years, yeah. for them to change over, it's just not going to be realistic. So, um, some of, maybe some of the newer equipment that's coming out, uh, there are many forums, global forums, yeah. and in Canada many forums as well, where people do address, and, and, and our, our clients and ourselves are involved in many discussions, where I think maybe in the end some standardization for the for the future, for the uh, future. could come, could yeah. come for sure. It's incremental, right? This is yeah. sort of the word yeah. we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Joe, thank you again. Once again, this has been Joe Lombard, Global Managing Director, Metals with Hatch. Thanks again, Joe. Thank you very much.